They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. I'm Tara. And I'm Shreya. Mankind's relationship with the wild has always been one of unease, even more so in the current climate. It's all too easy to see humans as something invasive, hacking away at the life around us. But beyond our hubris, there is a glimmer of a different fate for our species, one where we can only watch helplessly as the wild begins its slow but inevitable reclamation of the world we sought to master. From the Daphne du Maurier classic, The Birds, to the more ham-fisted, Birdemic, the idea of birds as violent dominators is not a new one. But in our first piece, we see a more terrifying future, where avian antagonists use their calculated intelligence to assert their control over mankind. A Mockery of Birds is written by T.R. North and read by Natalie Lydic. The summer when everything changed was particularly hot and rainy, which was later judged to be the primary reason that nobody paid any mind to what was happening until it was far, far too late. Summer in general was no great respecter of portents, with the sun blinding anyone who ventured into it, and mosquitoes wending their way into ears, no matter how many measures were taken against them, and the heat rendering everyone boneless and indolent. This particular summer saw excessive storms, which left people wading through oil-slicked parking lots and glowering balefully at water, which threatened to reach their very doors. It lacked even the dignity of a proper flood, working more by a refusal to abate than any grand accumulation. There was no current to pull anything under or sweep anyone away. It infiltrated and festered and had the basic character of a choked ditch spread far and wide over the whole town. It was into this sodden, weary, bitter Morris that car alarms were introduced in a seemingly inexplicable way. The catalyst was unclear. There had been no rash of stolen vehicles. The police department had taken all of three calls concerning lost or stolen vehicles in the past year, two of which had turned out to be erroneous, and one of which had proven to be fraud. None of the mechanics had dropped their prices on the installation of the devices in an effort to move inventory or attract customers who might need other, more profitable work done. Perhaps the blame could have been laid at the feet of the local news station, but they seemed as preoccupied as ever with haunting accidents, the weather, and human interest stories. And yet, suddenly, every parking lot had at least one car to wail, chirp, and honk at boisterous thunderclaps or a careless pedestrian straying too close to its bumper. These alarms were primitive in their character and implementation, of course. The first iteration of a thing always has a great many disadvantages over its successors. They were too sensitive, for one, too persistent for another. People were kept up half the night by an alarm triggered by some errant gust of wind, the car's owners snoring blissfully through the racket. People traded stories, apocryphal, but savored in the telling nonetheless, about feckless drivers who returned to their vehicles to find that the car's pointless 
and relentless caterwauling had been retroactively justified by a cinder block through the windshield, or a piece of furniture dropped on the roof from a third-floor balcony. People who'd long since grown tired of complaining about the weather complained about the car alarms instead. Letters to the editor decried the noise pollution. Neighborhood associations bickered over banning car alarms from their streets. The police were summoned to deal with noise complaints. Senators were called about the problem. A duly elected representative could do nothing about the weather, and very little about the mosquitoes, after all. But they could pass laws curbing the installation and deployment of automotive accessories as often as they pleased. And, it was felt, the public anger was not without some cause. The annual screaming of cicadas and frogs were perhaps more annoying, taking an aggregate, but people had learned to tune it out. A cicada sang only for the benefit of other cicadas. If they understood the existence of those blundering bipedal giants who sometimes pause to flick the exoskeletons of their youth from tree trunks, or coral-colored stucco before going about unfathomable business of their own, the cicadas gave no sign of it. They certainly gave no consideration to the audience in their ceaseless chittering. A person could be half-driven mad with it without taking it personally. Car alarms, on the other hand, had been specifically devised to demand a person's attention. Look at me, they cried. Pay attention to me. Do something about me. It was an affront, these things, these objects, which insisted everyone in earshot drop everything to attend. A human being had done this to the detriment of other human beings that they had never and never would meet. It was intolerable. And the people who'd spent the whole summer damp and itchy and miserable with so little respite that they'd become convinced, down to their bones, that they would never be anything else again, refused to tolerate it. One of the sad truths about Frog Song is that it has been passed down since time immemorial, inscribed in amphibian genetics with an indelible vocabulary. It is not speech as a person might understand it. Their phrases and meanings, but whatever depths a frog's soul possesses or lacks are lost to any creature but that frog. It can only communicate using that same handful of words known by every other member of its species. Cicadas are, of course, even more confined in their speech, though there's no tragedy in it as cicadas have nothing else to say. What else is there for a cicada? A creature who spends years, decades, burrowing blindly in the dirt, emerging into the sun, at last cannot be faulted for crying, Here I am! Here I am! Until its voice fails. Who can blame the people for their myopia? No one. Nature was surely red in tooth and claw, but it could be trusted to invest that brutality with no greater meaning. The nihilism of the tiger's roar was absolute, and the spider plucking at her web made no bones about her hunger. Civilization was less trustworthy, but there had always been a reliable presumption of directness. An alarm blared. It did not take secret, circuitous routes to creep back into the minds of men uncoupled from its original function. No one thought to examine this age-old order any more than they thought to see if gravity had relaxed its terrible, steady embrace sometime in the dead of night. It was ever-present, essential, and unquestioned. Even looking back with open eyes, no one could be sure of what they'd overlooked, or when. It was a subtle, invisible intrusion, slow and natural as the rising water, 
but as unquantifiable as a gnawing hole in the ozone layer. Trained scientists with the proper equipment might have warned everyone, but no one knew to look. Humans had forgotten the birds. Those winged descendants of dinosaurs had the necessities for communicating a great many things to each other and any other animal which would listen, and no small number of them had grown adept at speaking foreign tongues. These lone words worked their way from parent to chick over generations, crept their way into individual birds' songs almost by osmosis, and swept through whole populations in fad-like tides. Humans, for the most part, did not notice that one bird was singing another song. They heard the dry, harsh rattle of a wren, and assumed that it must belong to some wren hiding unseen in the scrub, never mind that it was coming from the throat of a jay in plain view. They heard the plaintive call of the woodpecker, and did not connect it with the angry posturing of the raven. With the coming of the car alarms, the town's birds suddenly discovered a new language, which allowed them to communicate perfectly the secret belief burning in their hearts, a belief which all birds have harbored since the days of the theropods, that they were ton-weight steel-plated engines of death, capable of roaring through the world at a hundred miles an hour and destroying all in their path. The first documented observation of a bird imitating a car alarm was courtesy of an elderly woman who called the park service to report that a brown thrasher had tried to keep her away from the bird bath she'd been cleaning by warbling and honking at her in the same pattern that her neighbor's viada used to alert the household that its owner had forgotten to turn off the alarm before opening the door. The wildlife expert on duty was troubled by the report, but assured the woman that it had most likely been a mockingbird, and with the increasing popularity of car alarms, it was bound to happen occasionally. The next few were mockingbirds, and one went so far as to sit on a mailbox and order a flustered postal worker to step away from the vehicle. It became a thing of nervous jokes and commentary as people began to sense a shift they could not, or would not, address directly. Birds had been winging their way across the landscape since well before the first proper human being had stood on her legs and walked upright, of course. And those birds had been loudly marking territory and calling for mates and challenging anyone who could hear them to a fight. Now, for the first time, birds had discovered a way to make the general population of human beings understand them. The day after the six o'clock news acknowledged the strange new trend of people hearing imperfectly imitated car alarms in the depths of the woods, it seemed that everyone had their own stories to tell. Strange encounters and overheard oddities, things written off as their imagination or a trick of the acoustics. An owl had hooted a varying tone alarm as it swooped at someone, trying to drive them away from a nest site. A wren had trilled out a whooping alarm on someone's porch at sunrise, greeting the day. A mockingbird had stood on someone's hood and mimicked the car alarm perfectly, much to their chagrin as they tried to get to work. The tipping point came when someone with a camcorder and an empty bird feeder captured footage of a mixed-species foraging flock in their backyard, all chirping and calling in different tones, from nasal honks to tiny trills. It sounded like nothing so much as an entire parking lot of disturbed vehicles, and the racket subsided the moment the hapless videographer's wife ventured into the yard and fed the assembly. Over the next week, several people with car alarms installed reported being lured outside by the siren only to find the car itself silent, but covered in birds, making the noise themselves. People disconnected their car alarms at roughly the same time that the town council banned them, all to no avail. The birds knew, and the birds taught one another, 
and the birds could not be uninstalled or banned. The birds had won the first and most important salvo of what everyone soon came to realize was a war, and soon people were reporting that birds had come to understand radio ads and jingles, that they knew what fire alarms meant and could, in sufficiently large groups, impersonate an ambulance siren. There was also no denying that it could sometimes take on the flavor of a personal grudge, a thing supposedly impossible. The birds should not have cared that one human was not another, merely that they were of a kind. And yet they did. The widower, who summoned an exorcist to rid him of the bird who spoke with the voice of his dead wife, the retired teacher who fed the jays in her yard to stop them from mimicking the laughter of children at dawn every morning, the campers who woke in the night to find not coyotes, but yipping, howling birds circling their tent, all knew what it was to be looked at by a strange animal and known. An emergency town hall meeting was called, and every wildlife expert available was asked to present solutions. Most of the solutions involved giving the birds whatever they wanted. A bird's desires, really, are not terribly complicated, the experts said. They want food, shelter, and to feel unchallenged as the dominant life form on the planet. Various types and mixes of bird food were available at practically any store in town, and nesting boxes and birdhouses were easily enough obtained or constructed. The assembled crowd was uneasy about the last one, though. What would it be like to accept such a blow to the community's ego? The birds could sense so much else. There was no guarantee they would ignore the spreading plague of cowardice. They would sense the power of their position and, emboldened as only a winged creature can be, they would levy ever-increasing demands of tribute. We don't need to materially elevate the bird's station, the experts assured them. Birds cannot distinguish between reality and their own emotional perceptions of it. Take the swan, for example. We can kill and eat a swan whenever we wish, but we choose not to because they're beautiful and taste terrible, and none of us have been hungry enough to turn on them instead of ducks or geese. But they do not know this, and so following a few simple behavioral rules will make a swan think that their mastery of the territory is absolute and unchallenged. Everyone was comforted by this idea, that the birds would be as easily manipulated as primates in that regard. So it came to be that emergency noise ordinances were passed in the hopes of stemming the birds' flood of new discoveries, and people spoke to one another in low tones, and preferably when there were no birds visible. The home improvement shops were asked to keep a steady supply of seeds and nuts and suet and sugar water on hand for any who might be inclined to buy such things, which was the overwhelming majority of households. Those with elderly or infirm neighbors shouldered their burden and put out twice as much food and scrubbed out bird baths twice as often. Ornithologists were hired to give demonstrations on appearing respectful of bird spaces and behavior and attendance was made mandatory. Nesting sites were marked out and avoided, with tickets issued and steep fines imposed for those who strayed close enough to set off a wave of shrieking and wailing. The birds congregated and watched during groundbreaking ceremonies and were heard practicing the noises made by the saws and mixers and hammers once construction began. And so building codes and civic beautification projects were designed with avian comfort in mind. Soon enough, the town was blissfully quiet once more. Provided, of course, that people always allowed the birds to believe that they were the mighty rulers of all they surveyed, that secret conviction which all of them carry to this day. In a way, it made it true. This reordering of life to prioritize the birds' satisfaction 
People didn't have to run the gauntlet of a screaming, warbling, wailing flock on their way out the door because the bird feeder was empty, certainly. But they tended the birds and their needs as carefully as they tended the lawns and the children and the cars that had started the whole mess. It rankled. But still, there was nothing to be done except fold these new responsibilities into their lives as seamlessly as they could and teach their children to do the same, in the hopes that generations would pass and the birds would someday forget. It was a vain hope. A bird that remembered it had once been a dinosaur would not soon forget that there were secret words and songs which would make the people worship them. They teach their children too, and with far greater reward in mind and silence. We often find ourselves drawn to nature as a form of decoration, as wreaths, trees, even the vases of flowers that dapple and ornament our homes. But in Julie Travis's The Cruer Garland, just as we covet the natural world, it covets us. The Cruer Garland features performances by Matt as the narrator, Eric Little as Tiara, J.M. Dow as the guide, Meredith Katz and Shreya Venkatesh as villagers, Casey Lucas and Mason Hawthorne as Mrs. and Mr. Noon, and Troy Gardner as the steward. And when it is finished, it will be 60 feet long. The guide raised his arms to the ceiling. The Great Hall was an impressive room, given to exhibits of victories rather than home comforts, but it was decidedly cold. The group nodded approvingly. The crew or garland would bring some warmth to the room. It was likely the only concession the Pengrave family had ever made to cheer the place up in its 300-year history. Yes, the Christmas feast will take place in here. The volunteers who have spent so much time creating the garland join the feast for free. I'm afraid the rest of us have to pay. There was polite laughter, and the group moved to the next room. Only Tierra was left, looking up at where the crew or garland would hang. Are you ready to join us? I wouldn't want to lose any of my group. Tierra shook himself out of his daydream. I was hoping the garland would be up by now. Been meaning to see it for years. And you must see it. It is a great tradition. It should go up at the weekend. We were blessed with an abundant crop of flowers for it this year, so it's taking a little longer than usual to finish. Will you be coming back to see it? I'm coming to the feast, so yes, I'll definitely see it. Tierra made his way out of the Great Hall. A meal with strangers wasn't ordinarily the kind of thing Tierra liked to do, but he knew it was time to find a new ordinary. His world had been shaken by redundancy and then divorce. He needed to get back into the habit of finding like-minded people. And the National Trust membership he'd bought himself as consolation, when his divorce was finalised, meant it was possible he'd make new contacts, even new friends. This particular house was interestingly different to the usual trust fair. Less elegant, more functional. 
as if the Pengrave family had no time for fancy elaboration. The house's woodland setting was also at odds with the familiar formal gardens and lawns of other trust estates. What gardens they did have were mostly set aside as a kitchen garden and for some of the flowers for the garland. He'd heard the place referred to as Dua, but he preferred it to the garish decorations of other houses. The fact that it had some atmosphere about it was surely something to appreciate rather than criticise. He was back at the house the following Sunday. The main door he cheerfully asked how the garland was looking this year. The woman gave him a rueful smile. It's still not quite finished. I hope you haven't had a long journey. I was told it would definitely be up this weekend. It's late for a good reason. We usually have around 20 to 30,000 flowers for it. This year there's 40,000 of them. It'll be wonderful when it's done. Where do you find that many flowers? Surely they can't have come from here. They're all from the garden and the woods on the estate. It was as if she alone had been responsible for growing them. The conditions have been perfect this year. That's why there's so many. The conversation gave Tierra an idea. The trip wouldn't be wasted. He could walk in the woods. He hadn't been more than a few hundred yards inside them before. Most of the trees had shed their leaves, providing a more bleak but brighter walk than he suspected one during the summer might have been. It had been dry for weeks, so the going was good, and he walked deeper into the wood, passing a handful of people on the route. Now and again, he came across a clearing, and he suspected these were where most of the flowers had come from. They were less pleasant to cross, being covered in slippery mud, and he circumvented them altogether after struggling to cross the first two. The muddy areas were quite stagnant too, judging by the smell, so he was glad to be away from them. As the path came to a fork, he saw a couple approaching, and stopped to talk to them. They discussed the disappointing delay to the garland's display. The couple were also there primarily to see it. Hmm, they're crawling all over my face. Tierra, who'd been walking away, turned back to the couple wondering which one of them had said such an odd thing, but both were expressionless. Neither appeared to have said, or indeed heard, anything. The smell of the stagnant mud returned, and Tierra felt a wave of nausea that sank to his bowels. He had a sensation of vertigo, as if he was high up in the trees, about to fall. He stumbled to his knees. He was aware that the couple ran up to him, grabbed him to stop him falling onto his face, and they were asking him something, but their voices were drowned out by what sounded like feedback. The tinnitus he occasionally suffered from, suddenly at full volume inside his head. The sound faded and he felt perfectly well again. He got to his feet, and assured the couple that he was alright. It was more from embarrassment than illness that he sat on a fallen tree, till they were out of sight. Then he retraced his steps and made his way home. Two weeks later, at the beginning of December, Tierra approached the house once more. This time, he had rung the trust 
and been told the exact time and date the garland would be hung and that he was welcome to watch. It would be interesting to see the job done, especially after all the anticipation. The garland was lying on the floor of the Great Hall. It was an impressive sight, much more so than Tierra was expecting. It curled and spiralled around itself like some monstrous boa constrictor. He had seen footage of the garland on the local news in previous years, and this year's abundance of flowers was noticeable. The garland was bursting with them. Seeing the couple he'd met in the woods, he went to speak with them. The garland's so impressive, I could faint again. They all laughed. By the way, do you know what cruor means? I'm not sure I'm even pronouncing it properly. Tierra shook his head, but before he could say anything, a steward standing nearby spoke up. It's Cornish. It means life of the land. And yes, you're pronouncing it correctly. Life of the land? Very poetic. It was certainly justified. The garland was beautiful, bursting with every colour nature could offer. The flowers looked as if they'd grown naturally from inside it. it was a wonderful effect. How was this made? The technique must have been developed by professional artists. The steward flashed a smile. Ah, uh, if you want to know that, you'll have to volunteer next year. Tierra smiled back. He had no intention of volunteering, but it didn't hurt to be polite. The garland was about to go up. Several tall stepladders had been placed at intervals along the great hall, and hooks placed in the ceiling. Ropes were placed through hooks in the garland, and it was hoisted up by men who climbed the ladders, and at the signal given by one of them, heaved towards the ceiling. To Tierra, it looked like a bizarre, colourful snake had come to life. He felt the same lurch in his stomach that he had in the woods. Looking up had given him the same sense of vertigo, the feeling that he was floating near the ceiling. He left the hall and went outside. Either he had a problem with his balance, or he was allergic to something in the house, or even the flowers themselves. Which was worse, he wasn't sure. He walked around the building and stood looking in at the Great Hall. It was possible to see the garland from this position, and there was no repeat of the nausea. It had to be the flowers. It was a terrible shame. He knew that he should cancel his place at the feast, but Tierra put off contacting the Trust. Having that fixture in his diary was like seeing a landmark in the wilderness. He knew his doctor would need to know exactly which flowers he had been in contact with before he could be tested for allergies, but Tierra hoped that taking antihistamines would be enough to counter whatever effect the flowers were having. After all, the garland was now well out of the way of where he'd be sitting. He gave himself another week to decide whether he was going to the feast, then tried to put it out of his mind. But that night, the dreams began. He was just falling asleep, when images of the garland being secured to the ceiling of the hall flickered in front of him. Suddenly he was inside the garland, being hoisted into the air, was looking down at the hall, busy with people enjoying the feast. The dreams came every night, each one involved looking down at the feast. Over the course of the week, the participants came to look more grotesque. Their plates became piled higher and higher, their gluttony more exaggerated, 
until they weren't bothering with cutlery, preferring to drop their heads into the mountain of food and eat their way out. He did not see himself there. At first, he tried to analyse the dreams. Was he anxious about attending a social occasion alone? He dismissed the idea. Then he wondered whether he'd ingested something poisonous during one of his visits to the estate. Various mushrooms had been growing in the grounds and in the woods. He remembered touching a few of the trees, but it was the rough feel of bark that came to mind, not any kind of fungus. Even so, he thought he might consult his doctor. The dreams, after all, were likely to be extensions of the hallucinations he'd suffered. A blood test could be revealing. What was most disturbing was that he never saw himself at the feast. Why wasn't he there? He didn't believe in omens, but as the nightmares went on, he became more exhausted. He wondered whether he was seeing a sign that he would be too ill to attend. Or dead? His usual dismissive attitude towards superstition faltered, but it didn't disappear, and he resolved to go to the feast to prove the horrible dreams wrong. He had been ill, that was all there was to it. He saw the garland once more before the feast. The local newspaper had a feature on it, as it did most years. This one was highlighting the record number of flowers that decorated it. The paper had a photograph of the garland as its centre spread, with the local trust volunteers standing proudly beneath it. Such was the effect of the colours that the garland looked to be raised from the page. Sacrifices must be made for tradition, read the caption underneath the photo. And Tierra was inside the garland again, looking out at himself. The bizarre hallucination continued for some time. He had the sensation of crawling along the garland's interior, looking out around the flowers. When he reached the end of the garland, he crawled out and fell to the floor. Then he was back in his chair, looking at the newspaper. The caption under the photo simply read, Volunteers celebrate this year's bumper crewer garland. The day of the feast finally arrived. Tierra had slept fitfully for the past two nights, but was determined to enjoy the day. The dreams, the nausea, the hallucinations would all disappear after today. He was sure of it. He arrived at the estate early. The feast began at lunchtime, but he wanted to put his mind at ease and see the great hall and its garland for what it was, a charming local custom and the great hall looked wonderful. Two tables, each stretching the length of the room, had been set up for the feast. Each had simple white tablecloths on them, with wine glasses and Christmas crackers. Tierra found his name badge near the end of one of the tables, and was about to go for a stroll when an urge came over him to sit down. This, he supposed, would dispel his worry about not being at the feast, as his dreams had suggested. It was too early for him to be there, but no stewards were in sight, so he seated himself. He looked up at the cruel garland, the life of the land. It was still difficult to think of it as a man-made object, 
rather than some mythical serpent, one that could swallow them all during the feast. And that's the purpose of the feast, to swallow you whole. This time, he knew the voice was in his head, but he jumped and looked about him. He looked up one more time and yelped as something dropped from the garland into his eye. He blinked frantically. It was probably part of a dried flower. If he really was allergic to it, it could be disastrous. He closed the affected eye and made his way to the men's room. Forcing the eyelid open, he bent towards the mirror. There was nothing in his eye, although it was bloodshot. He rinsed it as much as he could bear to and looked again. He hoped there would be no ill effects. As he made his way back into the great hall, he noticed someone crouching at the end of the garland closest to his chair. As he got closer, he saw a woman was cleaning something from the floor. The garland's not falling apart, is it? Oh no, no, some material made its way out of the end of the garland. Inevitable when there's so much in it, I suppose. Made its way out. Tierra's hallucination of being inside the garland came back to him. Was there something alive inside the garland? Not a rat or a mouse, something more obscure. It was a mad thought, but no more mad than his dreams and visions of being trapped inside. Mr. James, the guide Tierra had seen trumpeting the grandeur of the garland all those weeks ago, was suddenly by his side. How so glad you're here! The feast, like the garland, is special this year. How so? This is the first year we've been completely self-sufficient for all the fruits, vegetables, and herbs we use. The feast, the cafe, the shop, and the garland, of course. The kitchen garden and the estate has produced it all. What's the secret? Tierra expected a blithe answer, like the last time he had asked. A mixture of excellent weather and complete dedication. Tierra smiled and excused himself. Something was still bothering him, but he couldn't put his finger on what it was. He went to the shop and looked at the books specifically about the estate. He flicked through the most recently published and found a section on the kitchen garden. The gardeners have spent many years perfecting their methods. The fruit, vegetables, and flowers grown are the ones best suited to the conditions here. They are grown according to the lunar cycle. Moon planting has been proved over centuries to give optimum growing levels and was recently adopted by the staff. They also have experimented with different organic fertilizers and the results of the mix they now use speaks for itself. As he put the book back on its shelf, Mr. and Mrs. Noon, the couple that he'd met in the woods, now wearing their name badges, hurried up to him. There you are! The feast's starting soon. Everyone's taking their places. Tierra gave them a blank look. I've been reading about the estate. Something's not right. It's got something to do with why I've been ill for weeks now. Mr. Noon looked embarrassed. It's just a virus. Everyone's ill at this time of year. Not like this. I think I've been poisoned by something on the estate. Oof, I hope not. A lot of people are just about to eat all the food grown here. We've been doing some research of our own. We found out what cruel really means. Oh, yes! It's not Cornish at all. It's an English word, although I'd never heard it before. It means blood. Dramatic, isn't it? But I suppose blood is life, so... It just sounds like it got lost in translation through the ages. It happens a lot. Tierra smiled, but his mind was racing. 
a bumper crop of flowers and vegetables, the dreadful hallucination in the wood, the dreams, a perfect mix of fertilizer, blood. Blood and bone. Are you alright? You look quite faint again. I'll see you at the feast. I have something to do first. Mr. and Mrs. Noon took their seats in the Great Hall. The room, black and white for so much of its life, was a riot of colour. Ivy and holly were draped about the walls. Colour danced from the open fire at each end of the hall. And then there was the garland. It hung up high, along the middle of the room, but seemed to fill it. The feasters now had a wonderful view of it from below. It's certainly a magnificent garland. I know those flowers are dried, but I'm sure I can smell them. It reminds me that it's worth getting through the winter to enjoy the summer. Mr. James had made his way to the centre of the hall. He spread his arms wide. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome! Every year at this time we celebrate the bounty of the land and its eternal life. This year has been especially good. You will taste it in the feast, and you see it, and the magnificent Krua Garland above. And they all glanced up towards the ceiling. He didn't know what he was looking for, but he was fairly sure where to start the search. The kitchen garden was closed to the public, but the gate was flimsy, and Tierra barged his way through it. He went to the tool shed, picked up a shovel, lingering a moment to take in the smell of dry earth. Reminded him of his childhood, and of some of his married life, sitting in the shed, watching the rain fall and being aware of being dry and safe. He went to the nearest vegetable patch and began to dig. The topsoil was heavy, wet from rain. Underneath it, the earth was a different colour, darker, but not blacker, more like wet clay. Although the soil was not as heavy as clay, it revealed nothing. Mr. James turned in a slow circle so as to catch the eye of all the feasters. You will eat the life of the land! That, and the garland, have been created from the sweat, the love, and the blood of the gardeners and volunteers here! The cycle will begin again! Enjoy! He felt self-conscious carrying the shovel. He was wearing his best suit for the feast, but the few people he passed didn't seem to notice. It was cold and gloomy, and they all just wanted to be on their way, he supposed. He walked through the woods as quickly as he could, barely noticing the mud splashing onto his shoes and trouser legs. When he got to the first clearing, he was relieved to find the smell of stagnant water was less discernible than before. The ground was still extremely wet, but when Tierra bent down he could see daffodils poking through the earth. He took a look around, digging up bulbs, especially Cornish daffodil bulbs, would not go down well. But there was no one around, so he began to shovel the watery mud aside. Waiters and waitresses filed in with huge pots, began piling food onto the feasters' plates. Mr. and Mrs. Noon stared at their plates, at first in wonder, then in discomfort, at the food mounting up. Much as I like a bargain, this is just encouraging gluttony. Mrs. Noon laughed, wondering how on earth she was going to stuff this much food inside her. The rest of the feasters were delighted, however, 
so she smiled at those around her, poured herself some mead from the nearest jug. Everyone was holding up their glasses for a toast, so she and Mr. Noon did the same. The crew are garland, the life of the land! Mrs. Noon was about to correct him as to the meaning of crewor, when something splattered onto her plate and across the pure white tablecloths. It came from above. Again, he came to clay. The water was stained with it. Didn't make sense that clay would be here, hidden under decent topsoil. He dropped the shovel and knelt down in the mud, dug a handful out, held it close to his face. It was blood in the water, in the earth, not clay. Was this part of the special fertilizer blend he'd read about? What else was in it? Tierra reached down and removed more mud with his hands. The face stared up at him, framed by earth. There was very little decay. The man it belonged to had not been dead for long. The expression on the face was strained. Combination of pain and disgust. Tierra was not surprised. The face had insects crawling all over it. Mrs. Noon was the only feaster who was watching as the crew or garland began to writhe and take on a life of its own, splattering more blood over the tables as it moved. It opened its newly formed mouth and stretched its jaws in readiness. In the quiet of a still night, can you hear the chirping of insects, the call of a bird, the rustling of trees, this whisper of the wind? Do you feel the power of your humanity waning? Do you feel the wild rising up to claim you? Thanks again to T.R. North and Julie Travis for their contributions to this episode and to Natalie Leidick, Matt, J.M. Dow, Eric Little, Meredith Cutts, Casey Lucas, Mason Hawthorne, and Troy Gardner for their performances. Additional music and sounds were by Eric Matias and Kai Engel. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Big thanks to our patrons and supporting producers, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland, and to you dear listeners who keep our wild spirits alive. Our next episode, Ensnared, will be released later in December. In the meantime, entangle yourself in podcast news, submission calls, and other delightful lures at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on twitter thanks again to all of you listeners for your support we're looking forward to closing out this year on a high note and we couldn't do that without you until next time monsters out <laughs>